0: I'm going to ask you this evening to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and specifically we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 47, Luke 22 verses 39 through 47, and it reads as follows, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine will be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Jesus, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing in the gospel of Matthew everything that took place after Gethsemane. So we're uh, after Gethsemane. So we are going back into the garden. Now there were certain events that are important events that preceded his arrest and crucifixion. Last week we looked at his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And I shared with you on Sunday how many in the crowd had the right worship, but they had the wrong heart. They had the right object of worship. Christ deserved to be worshipped. Christ deserved to be hailed as king. He was indeed the rightful king of Israel, but their anticipation was a different Messiah than one who was coming to atone for sin. On Monday, the scripture tells us that at, as a matter of fact, at the end of his triumphant entry, right, he, he wept over the city. And then Mark tells us in Mark eleven eleven that he, he went over to the temple and he kind of looked around. He was looking around the temple grounds. He's kind of casing it out for Monday when he walked in and just on his own authority cleansed the temple. Just Throughout the money changers. Nobody gave him that authority. He just went in and did it. And then on Tuesday, he devised the Sanhedrin. And on Tuesday, on the Mount of Olives, he gives that phenomenal Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Luke 21, where he talks about the things that are going to come and the future events that are going to occur in the world. And then we find ourselves on Thursday evening to early Friday morning. The Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, the olive presses, we're going to see in our scripture. And it's important for us to note that the Holy Week is a week of contrasting emotions. I mean, think about it from Sunday until where we're going to look in the text tonight, Thursday to Friday morning. On one hand... There's messianic fervor that's going through Jerusalem. Wow, this guy raises the dead. I mean, he went to the tomb and he pulled Lazarus out. And and this is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to liberate us from Roman oppression and bring back the kingdom of David. On the other hand, there was violent hatred in the hearts of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. And the leaders of Israel, they had already gotten to the point where they were laying a trap for Jesus. They wanted for Jesus to implicate Himself. They wanted to kill Him. It was their intent to kill Him. They just didn't want to do it during the Passover. I shared with you on Sunday that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is, is no you know, cause of fate He actually was going deliberately, intentionally, to become that Lamb of God that taketh away. And by doing so, he forces the hands of the Pharisees. These days would be the darkest moment in the history of creation. This Friday, over 2,000 years ago, just think about it God would stand trial. God would stand trial. The Creator would stand trial by His creations. The audacity, the overwhelming arrogance and hubris of these people to put Christ on trial. And the Creator would be accursed by His creations. A.W. Toza made this statement. Only through redemption accomplished by Christ dying on the cross and raising the third day can we be brought back to the place of fellowship with God, which is the passion of every human being. Charles Spurgeon said, speaking on the cross, the highest glory of our holy religion is the cross. The history of grace starts earlier and goes on later, but it is its middle point is the cross. And tonight we will see how our salvation and our victory was secured in the Garden of Gethsemane. No Gethsemane, no Calvary. No Calvary, no resurrection. No resurrection, no Pentecost Sunday. Our victory, we're going to see in these few short verses that our victory is absolutely secured. It is won in Christ's agony in the garden. So let's go back to Luke 22, verses 39. And what I love about this is this is the night we celebrate. We celebrate. We celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate this. And we remember the crucifixion and we'll do this when we whenever we celebrate the lord's supper. Christ had just concluded the passover with his disciples. Part of that is John 17 where he prays for them and he you know we studied John 17 so if you ever want to go back and listen to those messages feel free to do so. But he tells them how much he loves them. He prays for the Father to be with them. I'm going out of the world, Father. You're going to watch over them. The world's going to hate them. The world hated me. It's going to hate them. And he prays. And he prays not only for his disciples, if you recall, when we did John 17, but he prays for all who would follow. Isn't it amazing? That night, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for us. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was dying for. He prayed for us. And he will go to the garden to pray. And I'm going to share something with you. It's interesting. History is started in a garden. Mankind falls in a garden. And mankind is redeemed by a Savior in a garden. So we're going to see as the Lord goes through this. This is Thursday night, early Friday morning of the Passion Week. But I want to specifically address this obscure text of what happened in Gethsemane so that we really see that our victory was won there. Look at verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. What's the significance of the Mount of Olives? It's not a mountain as we think of it, more of a hill, elevations about 300 feet, faces Jerusalem. During the pilgrimages, when they would have the three mandatory feasts, right, the more wealthier Jews would stay in Jerusalem, probably get an inn or a hotel or stay with family or friends. but the you know the more moderate of them would usually camp out and guess where they would camp out they'd camp out on the Mount of Olives. What does that tell you a little bit about Jesus? It tells you. Jesus wasn't spending the big bucks. He didn't have royalty points, right? He didn't have frequent flyer points to go in there. Jesus was probably with those that are the less affluent in that society, right? And there's another note here. He says, he came out and he proceeded. Notice these words, as was his custom. Which leads us to believe that the many other times that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, He found that Garden of Gethsemane, He found that place, a quiet place, a place that was secluded as a place to do what? To pray. What does it say about our Lord? That He was a praying man. A praying man. And how critical it is for the children of God to get to a place today to realize where we need to be praying, men and women. If our Lord would go into a garden, if our Lord would plead with the Father, fully human, fully divine, and He saw the necessity to plead with the Father, how much more critical is that? What would it say about us? He went into the garden and He hung out there. He went into His garden. How great would it be said of us if, as is his custom, as were her custom. He went into the garden, and he went, into the, uh, he went to pray. This is the site of Jesus. The Mount of Olives is the site of Jesus' Olivet Discourse that he gave on Tuesday. And Gethsemane was located at the base of the mountain, known as the Olive Press. They would gather the olives and press them out to make the oil. It's a place of crushing. Literally and figuratively. Because our Lord is going to go in there and our Lord is going to get crushed. The weight of sin is going to come down upon Him. Christ is driving to the culmination of His ministry. I think that's really important. We have to remember that not, you know, every step to Calvary was deliberate, intentional, and purposeful for Christ. And so he comes in there, and he's driving there. He's hours away from being betrayed by a friend, illegally tried, convicted, has less than 24 hours to live on earth in the flesh, and he will be killed on the exact day that the Passover lamb is slaughtered. And almost and exactly at the precise time. Look at verse 40. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. Mark and Matthew give us additional clarity in this dialogue. Matthew 23, verses 30-31 to says after the Passover, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. They give us that additional clarity. And by the way, when it says they sang a hymn, the closing hymn of the Passover is Psalm 118, which plays a very critical role in the last week of Jesus' life. I really invite you when, uh, to go home and read psalm 118 and you'll see a lot of the um, prophecies there concerning christ this is the same time by the way bear in mind that peter boldly declared what did peter declare peter declared lord if all these turn away from you i will never deny you i bet he wishes he got that one back huh i'll never deny you foot and mouth peter And yet Jesus, in Matthew 26, 34, reminds Peter that He will deny Him three times before the morning. Luke uses the term here in verse 40. He went to the place. But the other Gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, make it truly clear that the place refers to Gethsemane. Jesus enters the olive press. Ready to be crushed. It begins here. Here. Pass or fail begins here. Just think about it for a moment. Had Jesus balked, had Jesus not fulfilled the plan of God, redemptive history would have been shattered. Pass or fail begins in the garden. And Jesus takes with him his inner three Peter, James, and John. And he tells them this Pray. That you may not enter into temptation. That word temptation means either a test in a positive sense or in a negative sense, testing by sin. Testing by sin. So what does He tell them? Pray, pray, pray. Now listen, you got to remember one thing. Their hearts were heavy. What had Jesus told them? Well, Jesus had been telling them for the last week, hey, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands by wicked men. The Son of God is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be crucified. But He got even more specific at the Passover. I tell you tonight, one of you shall betray Me. By the way, did you ever notice? No one went, must be Judas. What did they say? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Am I going to betray you? And then they come out, they sing a hymn, and as I just read to you in Matthew 23, He says to them, you will all fall away tonight. You will all fall away. So matter Peter, James, and John, their hearts heavy. Sorrow fills their heart. They're worried. What does this mean? And He tells them, pray. Pray that you don't. Enter into temptation. There's many times in our lives as believers when we're faced, we're confronted with a challenge, we're confronted with a a test where we retract and we take things into our own hands and we do it the way we want to do it and we don't take time to pray, we don't take time to seek the Word of God, we don't take time to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and what happens? We move, we act in our own will. Usually is not good. All are going to be tested tonight. Not only Peter, James, and John, but the remaining eight. Judas has already departed. He's already starting to lead the boys up for the arrest for Jesus. Jesus had given them their warning. And with perplexity, He sets them down there. And look at verse 41. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throat. And he knelt down. And he began to pray. Jesus left them there and set off a little bit further to be alone with the Father. Oh, to be alone with the Father. Oh, to be alone with the Father. To have that time, what do you do to be alone with the Father? Several years ago, there was that uh, movie called, uh, what was that thing? The... About the lady who prayed in the closet the warrior war room war room, war room, war room. <laughs> al i was thinking warriors right from when we were kids the war room right and everybody started building little prayer closets and putting post-its up but all oh, the best time to be alone with the lord is in the wee hours in the early morning when there's no distraction, when your mind is fresh, when you turn your heart intention, you know what the church needs? The church needs men and women who will pray, who will seek God, who will lock on and put their hands around the horn of the altar and say, "Father, I'm not going to let go. I'm coming into you. I'm coming to pray and abandon themselves." We got to get out of this formalized religion. We got to get out of this traditionalistic type of approach and press into God. Hey, Jesus is going to pray in such a manner, He's going to agonize in prayer. You don't hear too much about agony anymore, huh? You don't hear too much about tarrying, continuing forward in prayer. There's A lot of verses that get thrown out there, hey, just say this, just say that, boom, 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 and it's all good. But God calls the godly man or woman to come together and to press in in prayer. And I want to share something with you right now at the very beginning. Because I've heard this a million times and it makes me sick. I want you to dismiss from your mind forever that Jesus agonized in the garden Because He was somehow intimidated or afraid to go to the cross. Flush that thought. Get that out of your mind. That is not the agony that Jesus is going to experience here. Many martyrs, mere mortals, went to their deaths with smiles, rejoicing and singing and laughing and praising God up until the moment they were lit in fire, up until the moment that they released the beast, Up until the moment they were crucified, they thought it was not worthy to die. Many of them said, I feel unworthy to die a martyr's death. Our Lord, God incarnate, would be intimidated by whatever the world could throw at Him? No. Get that out. Wrong interpretation. What did Jesus know when He knelt to pray that night in the garden? Just think, what would it have been like He knew for sure that shortly within minutes he would be betrayed by Judas. He knew that. For he told Judas that directly. He said, hey, go do what you got to do. I like that. That's a little bit of Brooklyn in there. Go do what you got to do. He also knew that he would be rejected and denied by Peter. That in and of itself must have caused tremendous heartache for our Lord. For he told Peter just that. He knew the disciples when the moment of conflict came was going to flee, as we just saw. But Christ knew even more. And He knew that there was a price to pay. Blood needed to be shed as an atonement for sin. And He knew it was His blood that needed to be shed. In moments, He would become the Lamb of God led to the slaughter. The wrath of God would be poured out upon Him he would become a penalty for sin and the sin-bearer of the human race. Christ, listen, let me share something with you. Christ had never experienced that. He dwelt with his Father in unapproachable splendor. He dwelt in heavens in the glories with angels singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was the omnipotent One. All things were created by Him and through Him were all things created. Christ had never experienced that. And while He knew in His omniscience, He was now going to experience it as a man. Fully God, fully man. I shared with you earlier that the garden is where two of humanity's dramas play out. It was in the garden that the first Adam, when tried and tempted, failed, sinned against God. Separation between God and man. The curse enters creation. Sin and death followed. Fellowship is broken. Now in another garden enters the second Adam, praise God. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The one that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The second Adam enters in. And he will be tried and tested in this garden. His being overwhelmed to the point of death. Yet this second Adam will emerge victorious praise God. Sin and death are defeated. Atonement for sin made. He alone becomes our propitiation and satisfies the justice of God. Reconciliation will now become possible between God and humanity for all who place their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 verse 17. Notice what Paul says about this. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. As He enters the garden, as He kneels down to pray, look at verse 42. Jesus prays, Father, if Thou art willing, Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. There is a few things that are significant in this verse that I want to call out to you. I want to call out to you the first word that Jesus says, Father. Let me share something to you. We, because of Christ, those of us that are in Christ, we use Father very loosely. We call God our Father because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. For as many as received Him, to them become, uh, gave He the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. But let me tell you something. In first century Palestine, there wasn't one Jew who would ever have the audacity to call God Father. Father. So holy was the name of God, they wouldn't say it. So holy was the name of God, they wouldn't write it. They wrote an abbreviation for it. So holy was the name of God, they came up with Jehovah instead of Yahweh to use the name of God because it was sacred. But notice what Jesus does in the garden. Father. Oh, how that twisted the the rabbis. Oh, how that twisted the Pharisees. Oh, how that twisted the Sadducees. Oh, how that made the scribes go crazy. Oh, how it made everybody the audacity, this blasphemer, that he would dare to call God his own Father. And yet, we find the Lord coming together with the Father. And he cries out, if if thou art willing, remove this. What is is the significance of the cup? What's the cup? I shared with you earlier, don't ever believe that Jesus was afraid to go to Golgotha. He wasn't afraid. His entire three-year ministry was deliberate and intentional to take him to Jerusalem at this specific week in time. So don't ever think that. But what is the cup? What is it that he was going to be asked to drink? This is crazy. But it's the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath that would be poured out against sin. You see, salvation doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. It begins with a holy and righteous God A God who cannot tolerate sin. A God who cannot look upon sin. And a God that is pure and holy and just. And in order to be just, He must punish sin. So in this cup will be the wrath of God that Christ is going to be asked to drink in a few short hours. The wrath of God was going to be poured out on his God's only Son. Here's the most mind-blowing thing. For all who would put their faith and trust in Christ. What is God's wrath and how does it come to play? Where do we see God's wrath? We see it all throughout the Bible. You think about it. You see the wrath of God during the days of Noah. Noah. Build an ark, enter into the ark, I'm going to destroy the earth. And the flood came, and God destroyed everything that was there except Noah's family. We see the wrath of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see Abraham pleading with God, Lord, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? I think most of you know that dialogue, right? He said, well, what if there are 50, go ahead, find me 50 Find me 40. Find me 30. You know the countdown. And what happens, by the way? Is an interesting thing at Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens? Exit the righteous. Wrath descends. That's why Paul tells us that we're not appointed to wrath. Right? But once the righteous exit, the wrath of God. What was the wrath of God? Where's Sodom and Gomorrah? Can you go to that site today? Could you walk through the archives? It's a pile of ash you know last summer when things were going crazy in this country you know i would get a lot of phone calls and a lot of conversations with some of my friends who who don't attend here most of whom are unbelievers and um somebody said to me mark what do you think i said what do i think about what what do you think about everything that's happening when this was during the riots in the summer and everything else What do you think? What does the Bible say about it? You know, I'm the sage of the ages. Right? I'm like the the oracle at Delphi. And so I said, do you really want to know what I think? They said, yeah, I want to know. I said, I don't understand how America is not an ash heap right now. That's what I really think. We are a perverse nation. We're a wicked nation. Yes, there are believers in this nation. But by and large, as a people, we're an abomination before God. And how God still tolerates the things that are going on until this day, I'll never, never, never know. When in His righteous indignation, He would be perfectly just and right to destroy this nation. Oh, pray for America. Pray, pray that America repents. I don't hold out hope that America is going to repent. What I pray for is I pray that God would cause the remnant church in America to repent, that we would come back to, we would come back to true worship, we would come back to serving the true and living God, and should the nation and, and I believe the nation will. So let me put that out there. should the nation persecute the church? Should the nation come against the church? should the authorities and the government of this nation sting the church of God, that we would consider the worth of Christ and we would not bow our knees to Baal. That's what we need to be praying for. Pray that God brings revival to the church once again. Pray that God fills the church with the glory of Christ once again. Pray that men and women who go by the name of Christ would stand for that name, for that high calling of being called a Christian, that they won't turn away from from the gospel. We've had people in this church just turn away and leave the gospel and forsake the gospel but that God would have men and women resolved. Father, you drank that cup of wrath on my behalf. Father, you are worth it, and if I die, I die. Sidebar. Jesus knew there was a price to be paid on this night. Look at verse 42 as we look. Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. God could not be holy. God could not be just if God did not judge sin. That's what the world is missing. When they talk about love is love. Love is love. No, it's not. God's love is pure, holy, right, and just. And God must judge sin else God would not be holy, right, and just. And notice the heart of Jesus in this verse. Notice His heart is what? It is to do God's will. If thou art willing, remove this cup. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. That term, thy will, is an emphatic form. It's a second person. It's your will. Let your will, O God, be done. Remember Jesus, I believe it's in John chapter 6, He says, My delight is to do the will of the Father. Is your delight to do the will of the Father? Do we delight, do we rejoice in doing the will of the Father? Oh, that should be the heart of every believer and every Christian. And Christ also knew that in just a few short moments, at a few short hours, that He Himself, the Blessed, the Holy, the Righteous, will become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Romans 8 verses 2-4 to I love this verse so much. righteousness so that the requirement of the law would be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit in that cup was every vile disgusting sin of all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ think about that for a moment full of immorality adultery murder blasphemy Idolatry, hatred, thievery, lust, unforgiveness, self-righteousness, unbelief, every kind of sin. And I want you to know something here. It wasn't a once, you know, this person did this sin, so I'm going to die for it. Christ paid the penalty of sin, and that penalty of sin was an eternal penalty of sin. What do I mean? Those that God that die outside of Christ, those that are going to die outside of Christ, that when they are judged, their wrath that they're going to endure is for an eternity. Christ paid that wrath on Himself. An eternity of wrath for every person who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is so profound. I don't think our minds, we could wrap our minds around that. Many, many people were crucified, but none were ever crucified like Christ. None. Because the one who was crucified endured the penalty of the crucifixion for themselves, but Christ endured it for countless of millions and millions, those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. Two weeks ago, we preached a series of messages called Beautiful Savior. And I said, the purpose of the message, an overview of Isaiah 53, the purpose of the message is that we would see the glory, we would see the beauty, we would see the wonder, we would see the splendor of what Christ has done for all who put their faith and trust in Him. The perfect one is asked to drink this cup. The sinless one is asked to take these transgressions and these violations of God's law along with the punishment. And soon we will see the fulfillment of what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. We sang that. He was bruised for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by the very wounds, the very wounds inflicted by the Father himself, by the very wounds inflicted by the Father, the wrath of God being poured out, resulting in wounds and the blood of Jesus Christ being shed by those wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, one of the most incomprehensible verses in Scripture. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him. The Father was pleased to crush Him. The Father was pleased to crush His only Son. He was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. And all of this is being poured out upon Christ in the garden. As he's crying out to the Father, this is the cup, this is the wrath that the Son was asked to drink. And I'll share something with you too. That cup was horrifying and abhorrent to him. Oh, Christ is holy, just as the Father is holy. Tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And Christ likewise, like the Father, cannot tolerate sin. So drinking and becoming that sin offering, placing the punishment upon him, was equally repulsive to him as it was to the Father. But yet in full submission, as a man, he delighted in doing God's will and submitted himself wholly, freely, and completely to the Father's will he had never experienced anything like that before. Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8 says this, In the days of his flesh, listen to this verse, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Gethsemane. This is exactly what he's talking about. He said he offered up loud crying to tears and one who was able to save him in death. And he was heard because of his piety, although he was a son. Notice what it says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Full surrender. Full submission. I love this. Philippians 2.8 And being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The wrath that Christ drinks is the eternal punishment for sin for all who place their faith and trust in Christ. It's an eternity of wrath. Yet He agrees to do it. And it is prayer that we see here in Luke. He willingly subjects Himself to the Father's will. And thus, He becomes that Passover Lamb to make an atonement for all who would come to Him in repentance and faith. And I want to encourage you with something. And I say this with everything in me. That if you have not had the opportunity to turn away from your sins and turn to Christ as your only hope, if you know that right now you sit under the judgment of God, there's hope for you. That was secured in Gethsemane. Come to Christ. Put your total faith and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Cry out to God for mercy to save you now. If you want to understand more about this, you can come and repent. We encourage you to flee to Christ. Anybody ever want to talk to me about this? I'd be more than happy to talk to you and share with you what Christ has done. And what He will do for you. Look at verse 43. Now I want to to make a statement in verse 43. Verse 42 was agonizing. Torturous. Pressure filled. And Luke is the only gospel writer who records this. Now, an angel appeared from heaven to him, strengthening him. Oh, how Christ must have prayed. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the onset of his ministry? He had been fasting for 40 days. And Satan himself, the Bible says, Satan himself, not a demon, not no low-level demonic entity, Satan himself came to tempt him. And three times he tempts him, and Jesus stands. And then the Bible says, angels came and ministered to him. How agonizing is this moment in the garden? How grueling. We talk about Gethsemane being the place of the olive press. The crushing, the crushing, the crushing. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. There in Gethsemane. If he would render himself a guilt offering, the crushing comes down. And the angels come. Why do the angels come? Verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down from the ground. So agonizing was the experience. So pressure intense that it produced a human physical reaction. And that human reaction is his capillaries began to burst. And started to leak through his sweat pores. For years this was thought as a myth. This couldn't have happened. Nobody could sweat blood. But we've learned from medical science that it is an actual condition. Called hematopoia where the capillaries burst in the sweat gland, rupture and they secrete blood, and then it is mixed with sweat. This is caused under the most severe emotional, physical, stressful conditions, And it has been seen in concentration camps. It has been seen by those who have been on death row when the agony and the pressure causes such agony to break through that the blood vessels burst how agonizing did christ pray how did he press into god trust me he wasn't in the garden of gethsemane going father i just pray that you would give me grace as i go to the cross and you know lord i just pray you're going to be with me you'll never leave me for forsake me no 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 he pressed in he cried, he wept. his emotions came ringing out and the pressure of sin and the pressure of being that Lamb of God fell upon him and it was almost to the point that it killed him. That's what happened in Gethsemane. There's that famous portrait of Christ praying on a rock and there's a light coming down. Let me tell you something, that's not how it went down. In that moment, he thought of every soul that was going to be saved. In that moment, he knew he would soon be separated from the Father, whom he had never been separated before. That the Father would turn his face away as he became the penalty of sin, and as he poured out his wrath against all the sin. Oh my goodness, why doesn't the church understand what we have been saved from? Man, this isn't just a religious thing. Please. Christ paid the penalty for our sin through his blood in obedience because he loved us to such a degree. Why, why, why are we so cavalier when it comes to the things of God? The physical toll of Jesus' agony, pain for our sin, is taking its toll on His body and literally bringing Him to the point of death. After, we don't know how long He spent there, verse 45, and when He arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. I want to call your attention to a very camouflage word. And when he rose, Jesus went into the garden on his knees. Jesus went into the garden and knelt and prayed. And while kneeling and praying, he agonized over what lay in store. Then angels came and ministered. Here it is. This little sentence. This is the victory. Don't miss it. It's right here in this obscure sentence, right here in verse 45. Here is the victory. When he rose he didn't stay down the enemy couldn't keep him down. no matter what kind of temptation was put upon him no matter the agony that he sweat blood and he went through everything else christ got up off of his knees and when he did he was resolute to move forward and become the lamb of god the victory is won right here right here is the victory And what's the first thing he does when he gets up? Let me go back to my boys. Let me go back to the three guys I left over there. Surely they're praying. Surely they're in there. They're praying for me. They got my back. They're watching out. They're doing everything. They're strong. They're ready. And what do they do? The disciples... Their hearts laden with sorrow. Not fully comprehending everything. and, And let me share something. I really believe in my heart and Scripture tells us. They did not fully comprehend what was about to take place. There they are in the garden. And what does Jesus find? He finds them sleeping. And notice what Luke says. They're sleeping from sorrow. I've been doing a lot of that this week. They're sleeping from sorrow. and Jesus said to them, while you're sleeping, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus' response to these men was watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh boy, everybody knows that. Even unbelievers know that. Oh, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus wasn't trying to be cute. He was calling out that constant spiritual battle. That is in the heart of every believer. My intentions versus my actions. Oh Lord, I'm going to go out witnessing. I'm going to go share the gospel with this one. Oh Lord, I just... uh... I'm just going to DVR this thing on TV I wanted to see. And then after the basketball game, I'm going to go out and I am going to go witnessing and I'm going to share the gospel. Oh, I forgot. I need to go to the store and get a few things. But after I get a few things, Lord, I'm going out and I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to give the gospel to everybody I know. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's uh, 10 o'clock. Nobody's outside. I'll go tomorrow. Come on, man. Is that not us? That's us and i say us we need to watch and pray let me share something with you as a believer today in america today a believer today in this fallen world today watch and pray the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and there is enough distraction when i left the message yesterday for the service I said this, I said, I, I'm sure you can give me a million reasons why you can't come to church, but I'll give you one reason, Jesus Christ who bore your, your sin upon the cross. So can we not come and worship Him? Look at verse 47. And while He was still speaking, behold, a multitude came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve was preceding them. And he approached them to give them a kiss. One of the other gospel translations, uh, one of the gospel books, say that the Lord said, Behold, the one who is coming to betray me is at hand. Now I want you to get the picture. Gethsemane sits on the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem sits over here. Here is the Kidron Valley. Jesus was probably at the lower part of the mountain when with torches he sees this procession coming. It's estimated that 400 to 600 soldiers came to arrest Christ. One man. One man. you think they were afraid? 400 to 600 soldiers came to arrest him. Now, Jesus, I said in the previous verse, he rose, he got up, went to get his disciples, must have seen the torches, the lamps, you know, lamps coming, and said, hey, hey, guys, come on, the one, and he saw Judas. He knew it was Judas. He knew it was Judas. The one who was about to betray me is at hand. Come on, let's go, let's go. And what does he do? The, the, John's Gospel tells, he goes toward them. Notice the intentionality of Christ. He doesn't run away. Guys, let's run and hide, right? They're coming up. He says, oh, who do you seek? Of course, the Judas walks up and gives him a kiss. This is where me and Jesus are very different because I would have decked them. God help me. He gives them a kiss. Jesus said, who do you seek? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, "Ego Egoemi, I am He. An amazing thing happens. Four to six hundred people all fall down at the, de- the declaration of who He is. I am. At the mere mention of his name, there they go. All their spears, all their shields, boom, they all go falling down. Imagine, they get back up again. Jesus goes to him again. I think Jesus was just having fun at this point. But he says to him, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am He. Boom! They go down again. You know what that did to Peter? Peter said, Oh yeah. We're going to whoop these guys. That's why. What do you think? You think 400 against 4 is a fair fight? Peter thought so. As long as I got the one who could say I am he and they keep falling down. That's what gives Peter that gumption to be able to pull his sword out and swing at the head of the high priest's slave, Malchus, and cuts his ear off. And I always say he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was going for the head. But Peter must have thought in that moment, as long as I got him on my side, man, we're going to whoop all these guys. It's not even a match. But the time had come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. That was all made possible by what took place in the garden. There is no scripture account. There is no historical account. There is nothing that ever says that Jesus tried to elude his captors. Matter of fact, he went willingly, just as Isaiah said. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He would be betrayed with a kiss from a friend, yet he was strengthened and in submission to the will of the Father, he would fulfill God's plan down to the final word of every prophecy. And what would follow would be one of the cruelest, most heinous, most horrific deaths in history. So as we celebrate this night, the cross, I have a question, what was won in the garden? I believe that the Scriptures demonstrate that our victory was won in the garden. Anguish to the point of death, not fearing the cross, but anguish to drink the cup of God's wrath. Not running away from the cross, but rather running toward the cross. Christ completes one of His final acts of God's will and surrenders to drink the cup of the wrath. That's why He's able to rise. That's why He's able to walk to those who came to Him. That's why he's able to be silent before Pilate. That's why he is able to subject himself and restrain himself. I shared with you the two of man's epic struggles occur in the garden with the first Adam. And he fails miserably. And every ache and pain and every struggle with sin is the result of the curse and the fall. But oh, praise God for the second Adam who entered another garden who went in there resolute, who surrendered himself to the will of God, who said, yes Lord, I will become an atonement. I will become a propitiation. A fancy word simply means it satisfies the justice. It satisfies the wrath of God. God became two things. He became a propitiation. He satisfied the justice of God by becoming a sacrifice. And He was our expiation. Our expiation is the one who takes our sin out of the camp. It was the scapegoat that the priest laid his hands on. After the Passover lamb was slain, he took another lamb, laid his hand, poured out upon him the sin of the people, and this lamb was led outside the camp into the wilderness, symbolizing God taking our sin and taking it away. Christ became both a propitiation and an expiation. For who? For all who would put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I shared with you earlier that there is hope. Oh, glory to God, there's hope. I was thinking about it today. Lord, how could you save a degenerate like me? I know the answer. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make me pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I love the great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all the guilty state. And my favorite chorus is that second one. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in that day. And there go I, though vile as he. And what does the blood of Jesus do? Washes all my sin away. Washes all my sin away. Washes all my sin away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sin away. Glory, hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. amen. So what did Jesus secure in Gethsemane? What made the difference in Gethsemane on that Thursday to Friday night? He secured our victory. And that's why we can say we are more than conquerors through through him who loved us so. And I think of the glorious verse. Eye has not seen. Ear is not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared. For those who love him. If this is what we know. Can you imagine what we don't know? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Almighty Father. Glorious God. Precious Savior. Oh God, we bow before Your majesty and Your grace. Lord, we are not worthy, Lord. We are not worthy of such grace and mercy. And oh God, we rejoice in Gethsemane. We rejoice at Calvary. We rejoice, Lord, at the empty tomb. And we rejoice that you're coming back again, Lord, to reign as sovereign and king and take the title deed of the earth. And every knee will see you, every knee will bow, every eye will see you. Father, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee on the earth, below the earth, above the earth, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a glorious day that's going to be. What a wonderful day that's going to be. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see just to look upon his face, this one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. And Lord, we pray that if there are any here tonight, who know not the Savior. Oh, Lord, maybe they've been coming to church for a hundred years. Maybe they were members of church. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they sang in choirs, Lord. Maybe they, but they know not the Savior, Lord God. May tonight, may their victory be secure, that they would repent of their sins. They would cry out to you for mercy. Woe is me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Come and save me with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, he who comes to me. You will in no wise cast out. Be glorified, Lord. Be glorified as we, Lord, sing our next hymn. Be glorified. And Lord, I pray another thing. Let us not go home. Let us not go home and put on the TV. Let us not go home and be distracted with the things of the world. But, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would weigh this message and this truth upon our heart into our sleep, in our sleep, as we awake into our Saturday. And, Lord, with joy everlasting and the joy of salvation to gather with the saints again on Resurrection Sunday to sing the triumph, Lord, of you over the grave. This I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.